Actually, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to get baptized, uh, you can talk to Joe at the end of the service, talk to one of our uh, pastors. We'd love to just help you go in that direction. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, we are in a series focusing on what it means to follow the missionary God. We've entitled this series Missile Day. And for the first couple of weeks, we focused on different characters in the Bible to remind us what it means to be sent in the world. The first week, we focused on Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet who was called by God, and we focused that God is the one who invites us, who calls us into mission. And although Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah had his challenges, uh, he actually follows through on what God has called him to, to, to do. Last week, we focused on Philip, the, the disciple, and we talked about how Philip is one who was led by the Spirit into mission. And so uh, we are called to focus on the spontaneous moments and the sustained movement towards Jesus. Today, I want to focus on Isaiah the prophet uh, and uh, focus on what it means to have a heart of someone on mission. What's the posture? What's the heart that someone on mission is to have? And it's important to do that because to be on mission is more than just what you do to be on mission is about how you do it. Because the truth is, you can do all the right things, but have all the wrong spirits and have the wrong hearts at the wrong posture and the wrong disposition. On the outside, it looks like you're doing some wonderful things, but we have the wrong hearts. And so how do we have the right heart, the right posture, the right disposition as we uh, are on mission following Jesus? And so we're going to focus on Isaiah chapter 6, a profound passage of Scripture. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He goes on to say, then one of the seraphim flew to me with the live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. That last few, five last words that here am I, send me. Let's all just say it together, get in the spirit of this text today. Let's say that together. Here am I, send me. One more time. Here am I, send me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you praise for the ways that you transform lives. And Lord, I pray that as we look to your word today, that you would... Send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would receive every gift of revelation and illumination for our lives. And Lord, may we walk out like Isaiah saying, here am I, send me. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. To be a person on mission requires us to be deeply engaged with the world. And it means that we have to learn how to be close to the world, but not have the way of the world determine the way that we live. In short, Jesus said we have to be in the world, but not of the world. And to be in the world and not of the world is pretty challenging. To be in the world and not of the world has its struggles and such. Whether you are on mission on your job, whether you are on mission in your neighborhood, whether you are on mission in your school, whether you are on mission in your social media interactions, to be on mission requires us to have a particular posture. 
a particular heart. It's a, a particular disposition. And the truth is, we could be on mission and do the right things, but not have the right heart. And not have the right disposition and not have the right posture. There's a quote that's often attributed to Gandhi and some dispute whether he said it or not. But I think the words are important nonetheless, where it's attributed that he says, I like your Christ and I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, whether he said it or not, there's something important for us to hold on to, and that is that our posture towards the world is often not God's posture towards the world. Our heart towards the world is often not God's heart towards the world. Our disposition towards the world is often not God's disposition towards the world. Just think for a moment of the way that you view the world, your heart towards the world, your heart towards particular people. Think for a moment about your posture towards someone who wears a Make America Great Again hat. Or your posture towards a gay couple walking in the street. Your posture towards a Muslim. Your posture towards a police officer. Your posture towards an unbelieving supervisor. We often carry a posture that's not conducive to mission. And we can be doing all the right things and yet have the wrong heart. And so what does it mean for us to have the right heart? That as we are on mission, whether that is leading a small group, as we are on mission, whether it is sharing your faith, whether it it is leading a particular cause, what does it mean to have the right heart? And we learn something from Jeremiah. Isaiah, rather. Isaiah 6 begins with these words, in the year... That King Uzziah died. Now for us, it doesn't really make any difference for us who Uzziah was or what was happening because we don't really know what's taking place and why it was religiously and politically important. And so I want to just shed some light on why this particular line is really important for Isaiah. When you read Second Chronicles 26, you get a, a short biography of King Uzziah And you see that Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. We see that he was a king for 52 years, a long time. And the Bible says that when Uzziah started out, he was he started at a good place. It says that he sought the Lord. And the Bible says as long as the king sought guidance from the Lord, God gave him success. And so Uzziah restored the fortunes of the people. He fortified the towers. He expanded the military. In short, Uzziah gave victory over his enemies, and he secured the borders. But in his power, he got proud. And he sinned against God because one day he entered into the sanctuary. He thought, I'm king, I could do whatever I want. And he'd entered into the sanctuary, and he went by the altar of incense, and he lit a fire there, as it were, to maybe make a sacrifice or so. What's interesting is he fortified the boundaries, but he had no boundaries of his own, and he didn't recognize that he was crossing a limit, and so Uzziah goes into the temple thinking that he's God, and 80 priests come after him. Could you imagine 80 priests just storm the temple and say, what you're doing is wrong because you're not a priest. God has not authorized you to light incense. God has not authorized you to be by the altar. God has not authorized you to be here. And the Bible says that King Uzziah was enraged. How dare you talk to me like that? I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. He had the sense of entitlement. I deserve to be here. And the priest said, you're in danger, you're in dangerous territory. And he was enraged. And at that moment, the Lord struck him with leprosy. And he was quarantined. He had to go in his own room at that point, apart from everyone else. And he had to lead the country from that point on, separate from everyone else. This Uzziah, who for 52 years was king, has now died. 
And whenever someone's been in power for that long, you can be sure there is some kind of religious and political confusion. People are wondering what's going to happen next. Who's going to take over now? It is this Uzziah who dies. And you imagine people are wondering, where's God now? What's going to happen next? People are uh, not sure about their future. And so Isaiah, he's a prophet. Maybe he needs to get direction from God. Maybe he needs a word of wisdom. Maybe he needs some revelation. And he goes into the temple to seek out God. And when he goes into the temple, he is encountered by God. Don't you love when that happens when you come to church? Maybe you came for something and God meets you in another way that you really need it. Often we think, this is what I need, and God says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what you need. This is what you need. Boom. And Isaiah is encountered by God. It was in that environment that he needed some clarity, and, and God confronts him, encounters him, and Isaiah says these words. After he's encountered by God, he says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. A little hem of his garment filled the entirety of the temple. And above him were seraphim, which were six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. With two wings, they were flying. They were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there is smoke and there's fire and there's an earthquake, as it were, in the temple. And this is all important because Isaiah is being prepared to go out into the world. And this part of the passage is important because to truly see the world, you have to truly see the Lord. Until you truly see the Lord, you're going to have a hard time truly seeing the world. And so Isaiah sees the Lord. He has an encounter with divine grace and with God's terrifying holiness. The presence of God fills the temple. The seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy. And one of the words that jumps out to me in the first few verses is the word filled and full. The seraphim say that his glory fills the temple. But just so the seraphim are clear, they also mention that God's glory does, just doesn't exist in the temple. They would go on to say the whole earth is full of his glory. And the way that God's glory is filling the temple, God's glory is filling the earth as well. And that's an important word for us because we often think that God's glory is relegated to religious spaces. That when we sing together, oh, God is here. When we hear the word proclaimed, oh, God is here. But the seraphim say, in the way that his glory has filled the temple, his glory has filled the earth as well. And so to be on mission, first of all, means that we recognize that God is already close. That God is already here. That God has already drawn near to us. His glory fills the earth. And so one of the things I've been trying to get at is that when we talk about mission and being engaged in the world, whatever that might look like, that God's glory is already there. That God's presence is already here as well. The earth is filled with his glory. This is a deeply sacramental way of understanding the world, that God is closer than we think. Now, I know what some would say, what about the pain in the world? What about the atrocities that exist? What about the horrors in the world as well? It often feels like God is not in the places where there is not joy and peace and comfort. Where is God in those spaces as well? Maybe Isaiah had the same question. Where is God in this moment of religious and political upheaval? Where is God amidst all of the idolatry taking place? Where is God? And the seraphim say, God is here. The entire earth is filled with his glory. The invitation for followers of Jesus And people who are caught in a vision like Isaiah is to make that glory visible to the world. One of the ways to explain this phenomenon of God's glory being already within the world is uh, folks have tried to explain it in different ways, using different metaphors. And uh, some authors have tried to use magic to, to explain God's glory. And so whether you're talking about C.S. Lewis or whether you're talking about Tolkien or whether you're talking about J.K. Rowling, they've all tried to explain something about a supernatural power. 
Now, this past year, in 2017, I decided to read some things besides theology, and I decided uh, to read the Harry Potter series. And um, I, I got um, some hugs after the end of the first service, and I got some really bad looks at the end of the first <laughs> service as well. And so I, I've read seven, uh, you know, seven of their, the books in nine months, a total of over 4,000 pages. And I recognize that it's a very sensitive issue. It's a very sensitive... Magic, Pastor Rich, you're being used by the evil one right now, you know. And but without going into the specifics of it all, use your own conscience to judge these things. I'm going to give a message on the conscience one day, just on the conscience. It'll, it'll liberate a whole bunch of us, so just on the conscience one day. I read something about someone who wrote a Christian who was trying to make sense of the world of Harry Potter and how to understand the magical world. And he quotes C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis says that there are two ways of understanding magic, whether you're talking about Chronicles of Narnia, whether you're talking about Lord of the Rings, whether you're talking about Harry Potter. And Lewis says that there's two ways of understanding magic. He uses the words invocational and incantational. Invocational and incantational. When he talk about invocation, C.S. Lewis says that the word invoke means to call in. And magic of that source is, of that sort is usually referred to as sorcery. Anytime you see in the scriptures, we see that God is against this kind of invocation, calling in a kind of separate deity, demonic spirit into the world here. Whenever you see that in the scriptures, we see that this is not approved by God. But what these authors have tried to do, and stick with me with this metaphor and illustration, is that C.S. Lewis says there's invocational, and then there is incantational. And to incantational means literally to sing along with, to harmonize with. The language is that there's a song that's already being sung out in the world. Are we going to, can, can we sing along with it? It presupposes Tolkien and Lewis and Rowling and others presupposes that the world is already filled with magic. The world is magical. And the person who is in that world just needs to learn how to sing with it. It's not from another dimension of reality. It's already here as well. And I think that's a helpful image because God is saying, my glory is not just in another realm. My glory is right here as well. Will you sing along with my song? Will you sing along with the song of the kingdom of God? Will you sing along with the song of my righteousness and my love and my justice? Will you sing along? Will you harmonize with that their world is filled with the glory of God? In short, God is already here. God is with us. Will our lives harmonize and sing along with this God who is already here? And so Isaiah encounters God. Isaiah encounters his holiness. Then Isaiah encounters his glory. And it's two ways of saying that God is holy, other, and transcendent. And at the same time, God is imminent. At the same time, God is way out there. And at the same time, God is way down here. Which one is it? Yes. Isaiah gets a, a taste of the holiness of God, and then he gets a taste of the God who moves close to us through his glory. And Isaiah says two things that show us what a posture of someone on mission looks like. Two things that my hope is for this week, these will be our two phrases as well. That when we pray, when we're walking out, when we're engaged in the mission, that these two phrases would be ours. He first says, woe is me. And then he says, here I am, send me. Woe is me, and here am I, send me. I want to focus, first of all, on woe is me. When Isaiah is encountered by God in the temple, he encounters himself in the process, and that's what revelation does. Whenever God reveals himself to you, you, you get an encounter with God, but you also get an encounter with yourself. You see how holy God is, you see how sinful you are. You see how other God is. You see how majestic God is. You see how weak you are. You see how powerful God is. You see how broken you are. To get a revelation of God is also to get a revelation of yourself. 
This is why it's very important when we talk about I saw God and I got a revelation of God. If the revelation that you get of God doesn't lead you to a closer revelation of yourself, I could question whether you had a revelation of God. Talk to me, somebody. I mean, I'm talking good stuff here. If your whole revelation is about I just saw the Lord and this and that here, but it's not a corresponding sense of I see my own brokenness and my sinfulness and my weakness, I can question whether you had a revelation of God. Luke chapter 5, Jesus is with his disciples. They're professional fishermen. They have not caught any fish. Jesus says, throw the net that way. They said, Jesus, you're a rabbi. You know nothing about fishing. He says, throw the, throw the net that way. They throw the net that way, and the net is filled with fish. They can't believe it. This is a rabbi. He didn't go to fishing school. How did he just do that? And Peter, after he sees it, he goes up to Jesus, throws himself on the ground at his knees and says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. He had a revelation of Jesus, of that he, this man is a holy man, and the only thing he could say is, get away from me, because I am a sinful man. When John the Apostle in the book of Revelation encounters the risen Jesus in his magnificent glory, it says these words, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. He could not handle the glory of God. And one of the dangers of Christian spirituality is to see God exclusively as this kind of cosmic teddy bear who just wants to let you know you're doing fine, you're okay, I could care less about your decisions. I know you're making destructive decisions, but there's a lot of grace for you there. There's a danger to see God exclusively as this cosmic teddy bear. Over and over again, we see that God is holy. Over and over again, we see that God, yes, is a comforting father, but God is also a consuming fire. And we must learn how to hold the two in tension together. That to have a relationship with the God of the Bible is to recognize that we have a relationship with a comforting father and we have a relationship with a consuming fire. And unless we're holding the two together, we're not having a relationship with the biblical God who Jesus reveals to us. Now, many of us have just a relationship with God as consuming fire, and that's no fun. You're living all judged and terrible, and I, there's, there's no hope for me. And so for those of you who live in that space where you see God as a consuming fire, you need some comforting father in your life. You need some grace in your life, compassion in your life. But then some of us live in the space of God as just a comforting father. And he could care less about our decisions. And for those folks who live in that space, Deidre Bonhoeffer said, that's called cheap grace. That's the grace that makes no demands on my life. That's a grace who says, I want all the grace in the world, but I don't really want to change my life. We need to see God as comforting father and as consuming father. And so Isaiah says, woe is me. Eugene Peterson says to that phrase, woe is me, is basically says, I'm as good as dead. I just saw God. I'm as good as dead. If we never have those moments where the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the greatness of God is not confronting us, maybe we're not having a relationship with a God who Scripture reveals over and over again. Isaiah says these words, woe is me. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. If Isaiah was here today, he would say, I am a man of unclean tweets and I live among a people of unclean tweets. Isaiah recognizes it's not just his lips that are a problem. Lips show forth what's happening in the heart. And this is all important for us when we think about mission, because mission is not just what you do. Mission is the spirit in which you do it. And we live in a world, why is this word important for us? Because we live in a world that categorizes it very neatly, us and them. Us. And then we live in a world that says the world is awful. Thank God I'm doing okay. But out there, those people are awful. We live in a world that sees that, that, that lives according to the blame game. 
We see it everywhere. We saw it all this past week. The government shut down. Democrats are saying their Republicans are the problem. Republicans are saying it's the Democrats that's the problem. And it's the blame game. And you know, this all started from the beginning of human history. This isn't something new. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he said, listen, guys, there's lots of food to eat here. There's like, you got everything before. Don't touch that tree. But there's everything else. I mean, you'll love it. It's fantastic. And they were like, thank you. He said, I'll be back. I'm I'm just going to get a snack. I'll be right back. 20 minutes later, God's like, all right, everybody, how's it going? What happened? And Adam says... The woman you gave me. He blamed God and Eve in one shot. (laughs) Double for your trouble. He said, the woman you gave me, she gave me something to eat. How am I going to say no? And then he looks at Eve. What What happened? I was gone for 20 minutes. What, What happened? And she says, the serpent. In other words, that you created, God. You created that thing deceived me. We live in a world that says, woe to you, and not woe is me. And from the beginning of time, we've been saying, woe to you, and not saying, woe is me. My friend Glenn Packiam, he said that the ministry of the prophet doesn't begin with woe to you, but woe is me. And unless we are on mission with that posture, unless we are on mission with that disposition, unless we are on mission with that heart, we're going to do more damage than good. A century ago, there was an article that came out in a newspaper, and the title of it was called, What's Wrong with the World Today? And the British journalist, G.K. Chesterton, the one who led C.S. Lewis to faith, He wrote a letter to the editor, a response. This is a man of many words, a man of many sophisticated words. And he responds to this article, What is Wrong with the World? And this is what he writes. He says, Dear Sirs, I am. (laughs) Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. If we responded to that, we would say, To whom it may concern, they are. (laughs) Sincerely yours, everybody. Woe to you, instead of woe is me. It's easy to live, woe to you. It's easy to see the sins of others. It's easy to see the failure of others. We live in a world that's conditioned to say, woe to you. And yet, Isaiah says, woe is me. And then he says, I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, he's saying this, I'm a part of the problem. This word is important for us because it teaches us how to see ourselves before we see the world. It's easy to look at the problems of the world, whether we're talking about race issues or sexuality issues or poverty issues or inequality issues, and think we're the ones with the solutions, they're the ones with the problems. And rarely do we say, yes, I'm a suspect as well, that I'm complicit in one way or another in the fallenness of the, the world as we experience it today, woe is me. When I have arguments with people, disagreements with people, whether it's with my wife or whether it's with a friend, whether it's at church, whether it's with my family, my, my default mode is to say, woe to you. It's your fault this happened. And I might not say it that way, but I'm surely thinking it. If you hadn't said that, if you hadn't done that, if you see it my way, if you only understood where I'm coming from, woe to you. And yet Isaiah says, if we're going to live the kind of mission that God is calling us to do, we must begin by saying, woe is me. It's always somebody else's fault. The immigrants are the problem. The poor are the problem. The rich are the problem. Muslims are the problem. Politicians are the problem. They might have a point there, but probably, you know, it just. <laughs> but all of us have contributed in one way or another to the world that exists today. 
This is why I love, when we talk about EHS, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, for those of you who might be new to us, we, we talk about different skills to help people have healthy relationships one, with one another. And one of the skills that we teach is a skill called the ladder of integrity. And that the ladder of integrity essentially is this. There is a value that you have that has been violated. The value hold, it's been violated. And you now want to have a, a conversation with someone who's violated a value of yours. How do you have that conversation? Now, in my house, I mean, we scream. I just, you know, just growing up, it's just like, you valued it, I'm going to let you know. But there's got to be a better way to do this. And so at New Life, we want to teach people how to have healthy relationships, how to resolve differences, how to uh, get into the mess of things, and yet at the same time, come out even better. And so we, there's a tool called the ladder of integrity. And I love how the ladder of integrity begins because it begins, first of all, by saying, right now, the issue on my mind is this. Like, this is an issue here, and this is what's on my mind. But the second step is this. My part in this is. In other words, we're beginning the conversation by taking ownership, by saying, we're in a mess right now. Something's in, a value has been violated. But before we even move further, I need to say, my part in this is. I've somehow been complicit whether I know it or not, whether through my actions or inactions, whether through my words or my silence, my part in this is. And this is really important because Christians are notorious from distancing themselves and ourselves from the sinfulness and brokenness of the world. And unless the church begins to lead the way in confessing sin, Unless the church begins to lead the way in naming our missteps and our mistakes, until the church begins to say, woe is me, how can we have a witness out there? It's impossible, it can't happen, it's impossible. Woe is me. The world desperately is longing for Christians who not only give the message of salvation, but Christians who also are willing to share our own struggles. That we're just in the same, we're in the same boat for many things. We just receive grace and forgiveness and we're living out of that space. When you read the New Testament, when you see what's happening in the, the book of Corinthians and you read all the church, they're a mess. What a mess. And the church is not a place where everyone has got their act together. The church is to be the place, as Eugene Peterson said, where, where sin is addressed, where there's community, where there's grace that's being poured out. We're no different from the world in our terms of our brokenness. We're different in the ways that we address it. And so Isaiah is confronted by, let me move on, Isaiah is confronted by God's holiness, but it doesn't end there. He's ruined, but that's not how the story concludes, because God meets Isaiah in that moment. And what begins to happen is there is a contrast with Isaiah and with Uzziah. And let me just unpack the contrast a little bit here. King Uzziah felt entitled to be in the temple. I belong here, he said. This is my space. And God says, this is not your space. You don't belong here. Isaiah says, I don't belong here. This is not my space. And God says, you belong here. This is your home. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Uzziah, it was entitled, this is my territory now. I'm king, I run the show. God says, no, I'm king. There's your room. Isaiah says, I don't even deserve to be here. And God says, make yourself at home. He says, woe is me, and an angel comes with a coal, a hot coal, and comes at Isaiah. You could imagine Isaiah's thinking, this is the end of my life right now. I'm about to die. And the angel just puts it on his lips. And God says, I've forgiven you. Atonement, grace, mercy, compassion. It's yours now. You've identified your sin. E even the sheer fact that we are aware of our sin, Fleming Rutledge said, is already the grace of God coming to us. The fact that you're already aware of your sins means God is already working on you. And God, through the seraphim, touches his lips, forgives him, gives him grace, and then God gives this gracious invitation. And here we see it. We see sin, and for all that it is, we see miraculous grace. And the story doesn't end there. God then says, there's a mission to be done. And then he says, who shall I send? And who will go 
for us. Who's going to represent us? And here, Isaiah gives one of my favorite phrases in the entire Bible. He says, here am I, send me. He's almost like that kid in the classroom that he knows the answer and he wants the teacher to pick on him. Who's going to go for it? Oh, oh, I know the answer. Please call me. Call me. And the teacher's always looking for somebody else. Uh, You already answered. Johnny, who's going to look for somebody else? No, no, no. But I know the answer. Excuse me. That's Isaiah. It's interesting because he's so different from Jeremiah. God calls Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, I'm not doing that. You crazy? I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. I'm not going to do that. Moses, you write you down. You're gonna, I'm gonna send you to Pharaoh, but who's gonna come with me? I'm not gonna do that. Who's gonna go with me? Isaiah's going, ooh, 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 choose me, pick me, here, here am I, send me. And we need both. We need moments where we need to feel our own inadequacy. And then there are moments where we need joyful eagerness to say, God, what do you want me to do? And we need both of that. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And what I love about that is Isaiah doesn't even know where he's going. If it's me, God says, who's going to go? I'm going to go. Where are we going? Uh, how long is that going to be? And when can I come back? i got to watch the game. How, when, when am I going to come back? You know? And so I want to know the specifics before I can say yes to God. Isaiah doesn't even hear the specifics. He's so open. You know what it is? He's grateful. Lord, you forgave me. You poured out grace on me. How can I repay you? Here am I. How can I repay you? Send me. Isn't that the heart of the Christian? Lord, here, Lord, you, you've done all that for me. How can I repay you? Here am I. Send me. And I love it because Isaiah, he, he has the heart of a missionary, not the heart of a tourist. And it's important that we distinguish the two. A, 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 a person on mission is, is led by God, I'll put it this way, led by God into the unknown and is invited to trust. A tourist just wants to sightsee on his or her own terms. And we have a good, we, we have a, a, a kind of spiritual tourism that takes place in much of Christianity, where we want to do things on our terms. But Isaiah is open, overwhelmed, and he says here, I am, send me. And the reason that Isaiah can say, send me, is because of what happened in verse 1. The biggest reason we can have energy and joy and eagerness to say yes to God is because what happened in verse 1. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah says, I know who's in the control. Isaiah says, I know who has the authority. Isaiah says, I know who has the power. I've seen with mine own eyes the glory of God. Therefore, send me. And the world might be going crazy, but we need Christians who can see the Lord. Poverty in the world, but we need to be followers of Jesus who see the Lord. Racism in the world, but we need to see, have Christians who see the Lord. I saw the Lord high and exalted. And until we begin to see the Lord high and exalted, we will not have any joy, any comfort, any power to be on mission in the world. But when you see the Lord high and exalted, you are filled with a kind of power. You are filled with a kind of authority because you're not going alone. He sits high and he looks low and he's with us on the journey. I saw the Lord high and exalted. And we often wonder, how in the world is the world going to change? It begins by seeing the Lord high and exalted and seeing who he truly is and the authority that he has. And God says, who's going to go for us? Isaiah says, I'll go. And God says, that's all I need. All God needs is someone who says, I'm open, I'm eager, I'm available, because God can do a whole lot with a little bit. And we see that over and over again in the Bible, God using a little bit to do a whole lot. And the same is true in the book of Isaiah. Who's going to go for us? Send me. And God says, soul, I got you. We're going to turn the world upside down because I got one person here who's willing to go. And what we see in Isaiah is actually what happens hundreds of years later in the person of Jesus, where Jesus is the true Isaiah. Well, I imagine a time in eternity past, even use that phrase, messes my mind up. There's still a, a past means that there's time and it's an eternity, it just messes my brain up here. 
In a time and eternity past where the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in their divine counsel. The angels are flying to and fro saying, holy, holy, holy. And the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit look down in the world and see poverty and see affliction and see corruption and, and see death and see pain. And they go, who will go for us? And Jesus says, here am I. Send me. And Jesus is sent into the world. And Jesus dies for us, born of a virgin, preaching with power, casting out demons, healing the sick, dying for our sins, raised up on the third day. Here am I, send me. And what God is looking for are people who will say, here am I, send me. Send me into the prison. Send me into the hospital. Send me into the university. Send me into the marketplace. Send me into the neighborhood. Here am I, send me. Let's pray together. I invite you to close your eyes for a moment and those two phrases of Isaiah woe is me and here am I are critically important for the person on mission the person who says here am I without first saying woe is me is a dangerous person because that person has not understood their own brokenness first and sin first so order is important we need to say woe is me and I wonder how you would join Isaiah in saying, woe is me. So easy to project out into the world the problems, to scapegoat and to blame. And yet the church should lead the way in repentance, lead the way in confessing sin, lead the way in saying, the world is not all it should be at the moment, and somehow I've contributed to it. Woe is me. And yet the Christian doesn't end there. Because there's grace and mercy and mission and invitation. And so it ends with, here am I, send me. I wonder how the Holy Spirit is coming to you right now. I want to give us a moment just to respond. We'll sing in a moment. But some of you in this room, you need to join Isaiah in saying, woe is me. And some of us in this room need to join Isaiah and say, here I am. And surely we can do both. Maybe you're in a season where woe is me is the phrase you need to say. And for some, here I am, send me is the phrase we need to say. For those of you who feel like woe is me is God's word to you today, I just want to invite you to stand just right where you're at. It's your own way of saying, Lord, I'm confessing my sin. Woe is me. Just right where you're at. If you sense this is a particular word for you today, just right where you're at. For those of you who sense God's call to mission, that maybe you've been avoiding God, you haven't been saying yes, but you sense an urgency. You know God has put some things before you. You know God has called you to action. And today you want to say, yes, Lord, here am I. Send me. If that's you, just stand right where you're at. For those who said, woe is me, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ loves you with an everlasting love. And he pours out grace and compassion on you right now. And says, you are my daughter, you are my son, in whom I'm well pleased. And grace is all yours. And I give it in the full. For those of you who stood up for, here am I, send me, the Lord says, 
I've given you power and authority. And I've called you to do things that only you can do. And I want to release you into your divine potential and into the purpose that I have for you. I am with you and I will not leave you or forsake you. Lord Jesus, the truth is we all need to say, woe is me, and we all need to say, here I am. Thank you for your grace and mercy that covers our sin and brokenness, that gives us new life. And Lord, thank you for the purpose that you've planted in our hearts, that we do have something to offer the world. With all of our failures and mistakes, Lord, it is in our failure and mistakes that you use us. And so, Lord, release your power and your grace in this room. And may we, like Isaiah, step out into the world saying yes to you. We sing to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, let's all stand. Let's sing together.
I want to invite our prayer team to come to my left, to, to my right rather, and your left, and we'll have the Lord's table, those who are going to be offering the bread and the cup to come forward as well. What I love about this passage is you got the entirety of Christianity in this thing, the holiness of God, the grace of God, God inviting us into mission. I mean, it's, it, it is all here in this passage here. And Jesus, who is the true holy one, comes near to us, forgives us, pours out grace. And he just doesn't come to save us. He comes to send us. Christianity is all about, often about, here I am, save me. And there's that to it. But Christianity must go from here I am, save me, and move as well to here I am, send me. We need both. And so... However God is leading you this week in mission, whether to start a ministry, whether to witness on your job, whether to serve the poor, whatever it is, to start a business, well, however God's called you, we would, be, we would listen to him, but ultimately have the posture, the heart, the disposition, that we would have God's heart for the world. And so our prayer team will be here. We'll have Steve and Michelle offer the bread and the cup as well. I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven just to receive a blessing. Um, we'll have our newcomer lunch uh, in the lower level. We'll have cake in the shell room. For some of you that have been trying to get your diet together, it's a good time to say, woe is me. You know, just this, woe is me. And yet God will forgive you, all right? God will pour out grace for you as well. With your hands in your, in your hearts in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of the building in the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, woe is me, and here am I, send me. And may you encounter the grace of Jesus this week, and may he use you with great power to impact the people around you. I bless you all today in the strong and the beautiful in the resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you all.